Thank you very much, Dr. Tennant, for those kind, generous words of welcome. I feel honored to be with you this week uh, and to share in this uh, Kingdom Conference. I look forward to this week. I've entitled my opening biblical reflection, The Questions of God. <clears throat> and if you have a Bible with you, you might like to keep it open at the passage that was read to us earlier from the book of Genesis, chapter 4. I wonder if you've heard the story of the man who fell down a cliff. As he falls, he manages to hang on to an overhanging ledge. So there he is, hanging for dear life to this ledge, with the valley thousands of feet below him. And he looks up and he cries out, is anyone up there? And to his amazement, he hears a voice saying, yes, my son, what is it you want? He says, please, please get me out of here. I'll do anything you want. The voice says, anything? He says, yes, anything. Please get me out of here. The voice says, let go. There's silence. The man gulps. And then he calls out, is anyone else up there? <laughs> we often think of God, don't we, as the answer to our questions, the one who satisfies our desires, who meets our needs. And when God does not answer us in the way that we expect, we, the, we turn our backs on him and search for other gods. And that's why I like these early chapters of Genesis, because they present to us a God who comes to humanity not in the form of answers, but in the form of questions. So in chapter 3, when the man and the woman have disobeyed and are hiding behind the trees in the garden, something very ironic that they're using the gifts of God to hide from the presence of God. Uh, again, something very contemporary, isn't it? Just think of how we use our gifts, our intellectual or artistic gifts, the gifts of marriage or sex or sport. We use them to keep God at a distance, to hide from his presence. And at that point, God comes to the couple with the question, where are you? A question designed to draw them out into the open so they will acknowledge the enormity of what they have done. But you know, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, and so they are banished from the garden. And so Genesis 4 begins with the couple trying to make sense of life outside of the garden. And they do what many of us do, that is, we try to make some meaning to life by rearing a family, living through our children. The woman exults, I have acquired a son with the help of the Lord. And she names him Cain which means to acquire or possess. It's a word that's used, that's used in the Old Testament to speak of somebody who makes things with their hands, perhaps a craftsman or an artisan. In contrast, her second son, she names Hubble, a vapor, a mere breath. It's a word that you find recurring in the book of Ecclesiastes, sometimes translated nothingness or vanity. 
So if kind represents the somebodies, the achievers in the world, Hubble represents the nobodies, the losers or the underachievers. So clearly this is a symbolic story. Kine works the soil. He cultivates the soil. Hubble, is, uh, 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 Hubble cares for sheep. And they both bring offerings to God from their place of work. And the story is about how God accepts the offering of the nobody and he rejects the offering of the somebody. And the writer doesn't tell us why God accepts one and rejects the other. Perhaps there is a hint in the fact that Hubble's offering seems to have cost him something. We read that he brings the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. He gave God the best. Cain, in contrast, his offering seems to be casual. He brings some of the fruit of his toil. But the focus of the story is not on the question why. Why was one accepted and the other rejected? The focus is on how the rejected one handles his rejection. So we know that Cain is downcast, he's sullen, he's angry. And at that point, God comes to him with the second question. Why are you angry? This question is both an invitation and a warning. It's an invitation to Cain to face those negative feelings, these emotions that are welling up within him. It's a warning that if he doesn't deal with them, they are going to destroy him. It's likened to an animal, a wild animal that's crouching outside the door. This is the first time that sin is mentioned in the Bible. Sin is like that wild animal. If you don't deal with it decisively, it's going to come and devour you, destroy you. I meet many people during the course of my ministry who harbor deep feelings of anger, resentment towards God. Because the Christian life has not turned out the way that they expected. I responded to God's call, I made many sacrifices, I went to live in an area that was violent, conflict-ridden, and my only son was killed in an act of random violence. Why? Oh, I have kept my hands clean. I have been faithful in my work, worked hard, never taken a bribe, and yet never been promoted. Whereas look at him. He's been deceitful, he lies, and yet he ends up as the CEO of the company. Or why is it that when my wife had cancer and the church gathered together and prayed for her, she was instantly and miraculously healed. But my wife suffered a long and lingering death. And God doesn't answer those questions. And how we respond to the silence of God is what makes a difference whether we stagnate or go back in our Christian life or whether we move forward. 
So God is essentially saying to Cain, you can look at your life up till now as one that's culminated in failure, or you can re-script, you can rewrite the narrative of your life and see this as an opportunity to learn from me what kind of worship, what kind of offering is pleasing. The choice is yours. So this is the dramatic hinge of the story. How is Cain going to respond to God's invitation and warning? Well, the tragedy is that he shuts his ears, he hardens his heart. His self-pity and resentment now turn to jealousy towards his brother. Jealousy leads to deceit. He tells his brother Hubble, let's go out into the field, and deceit results in murder. And then God comes with the third question. Where is your brother, Hubble? Notice the connection between the first question, where are you in relation to me, with the third question, where is your brother Hubble in relation to you? You find right through the scriptures, idolatry and social injustice going together. That whenever people turn their backs on God, they turn their backs on the Hubbles of the world, the nobodies, the insignificant people. And I wonder, and here I'm thinking aloud, is question two, why are you angry, the link between the first and the third? In other words, if we lack self-awareness, if we don't spend time in self-introspection, addressing the negative feelings that often well up within ourselves, then is it more likely that we end up deceiving ourselves, that we have a relationship with God when we have no relationship at all with the Hubbles of this world? Or do we deceive ourselves in thinking that we can truly care for the Hubbles of this world without being in a right relationship with God? So Cain's response is to shrug his shoulders and say, am I my brother's keeper? Well, obviously he is, but again, he's shunning responsibility. And then God says to Cain, the blood of your brother Hubble cries out to me from the ground. Again, this is a theme that runs right through the Old Testament, the God who hates the shedding of innocent blood, blood that scars the land and calls forth divine judgment. And there is another sermon in how the environment in which we live absorbs and reflects our human violence. God sees the evil that is done in secret. He holds us responsible. And so an important part of Christian mission is to keep the memory of those forgotten victims alive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his letters from prison in 1945, just before his execution, famously wrote, we have now learned to read history from the underside, from the perspective of the downtrodden, the reviled, the suspect, the oppressed, 
in other words, from the perspective of those who suffer. Christians read history, the history of their nations, from the underside, not from the perspective of the victors. And history is a debt that we owe the forgotten dead. So often our school history textbooks are biased towards the stories of those who have triumphed. War crime tribunals hold accountable those who have been defeated. That is why in 1945, uh, Nazi and Japanese military and political leaders were brought to trial for their war crimes, their crimes against humanity. But why was Winston Churchill never brought before a tribunal? After all, he ordered the saturation bombing of German cities like Dresden and Cologne, targeting civilians, deliberately wanting to see maximum civilian casualties, just like what Putin is doing today in the Ukraine. Or what about Harry Truman, who ordered the atom bombing of two Japanese cities? These were crimes against humanity, never brought before any human court. Just think of the four Gospels that we find in the New Testament. They all contain detailed descriptions of crucifixion. If not for the four Gospels, we would have no description of crucifixion in the ancient Roman Empire. We would think that crucifixion never happened. But you see, the Gospel writers keep alive the memory of the crucified one. And each time we celebrate the Eucharist, Holy Communion, we remember the crucified one par excellence, the victim of history who stands in solidarity with all the other victims of history. So when Cain is punished, is uh, chased off the land, he cries to God for mercy. And God puts this mysterious mark of protection upon him because the murderer still remains human and needs protection from vigilante violence. As we would say today, his rights need to be protected by due process. And God's action towards Cain has deep implications for the way that we treat criminals or enemy soldiers, prisoners of war. Just think in your country, there are more African-American adults in your prisons today than were enslaved at the beginning of the Civil War. A horrifying number of children are incarcerated in adult prisons. Indeed, the U.S. is the only country in the world that sentences children to life imprisonment without parole. Over 50% of prisoners have a mental illness, and there are more than three times the number of people with a serious mental illness in prison than there are in hospitals. And then, of course, there's Guantanamo Bay that's forgotten, people languishing without trial. 
And why are convicted felons in America treated as felons for the rest of their lives, even after they have paid their debt to society? They carry that stigma with them. They often cannot find work because they have served a prison sentence, and in many states they can't even vote. We read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 24, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant whose sprinkled, and whose sprinkled blood speaks more graciously than the blood of Hubble. So we need to practice a justice that is tempered with mercy. Tend to remember the forgotten victims not with a self-righteous desire for vengeance, on those who have wronged us, but with the ultimate hope of restoration and reconciliation. So while war memorials and days of remembrance, for example on 9-11 every year, are important, what shows our distinctiveness as Christians is when we honor those whom we have killed, as well as those among us who have lost their lives. And so the church's mission in society is not only to keep alive these memories, but also to ask questions. We are so often giving answers to questions that nobody is asking. In fact, they say that of theologians, don't they? <laughs> They're answering questions that nobody asks, and they evade the questions that everybody is asking. Questions like, what are the God substitutes in our country. On the back of the dollar bill, in God we trust, who is this God we trust in? Is it really the God of the Bible or the God of American civil religion? Where do we find the hubbles of our society and how are we relating to them? Why are we angry? What are the roots of anger and the deep divisions, the polarizations in our society? Where is the mercy that we extend to convicted felons and other victims of our dysfunctional institutions? These are the questions that we are called to raise in personal conversations and also in the public sphere. So let's spend a few moments in silence, and I invite you to collect your thoughts and respond to God in the quiet of your hearts. Our Father, we pray that you would plant your word deep in our hearts and bring forth the fruit in our lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen.